Our God and our Father, we thank Thee for this time that we can be together here. We thank Thee for the object before us, our Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray that as we take up this subject that we have here, like any other subject, that Thou would show us more of Him, that each one of us would have our hearts quickened to live more for His glory until He shall come. And so we look to Thee and ask for Thy help in the name of of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So the brethren in St. Thomas have asked if I would come and just present some thoughts on prophecy, and not just some thoughts, but if possible, a simple outline that would make sense, and be a help to someone who is more or less starting out, or perhaps doesn't have much background in prophecy. And I don't claim necessarily myself, but I have heard a number of brethren over the years and enjoyed a few things from it, and that indeed is what I will try to share tonight, some of those things that I've enjoyed. And so for those of you here who have studied this subject for years, please bear with us, and at the very least, I'm sure we will all share the endpoint of this subject, our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's turn to Revelation chapter 1 to begin. Revelation 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. Things which must shortly come to pass. We're going to be talking about that. That really is what the prophecy is that I have in my heart to present here. There's a great deal of prophecy in Scripture that has been fulfilled. And we'll talk a little bit about that as well, but... The key thing, and I think the intent of the question that I heard was, what are those things that are shortly to come to pass? But before we even got to that in the verse, we see that it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him. It's important to start there. We are talking about the Lord Jesus. Let's go over to chapter 19. Revelation 19, and the end of verse 10, just the phrase there, really the middle, it's the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And as I understand, that verse could be put the other way around. The spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. And so we are talking about our Lord Jesus Christ, not that every detail in prophecy is about the Lord Jesus, but he is the end point of prophecy. It really involves him. And if we don't get that, as we look into the scriptures, we've missed the point. We'll get a lot of wrong thoughts. And so I really want to start there because it is possible to take up with scriptural prophecy and look for all kinds of other things and miss the fact that It is the Lord Jesus and his glory that is primarily involved. So before going any further with this, you might ask the question, why should we even take up prophecy? What's so important about it? Why not just touch, you know, study the gospel, study Christian truth and things that involve our lives today? Well, there's many reasons, and I just want to cover three tonight. One is that 
about two-thirds of, of Scripture is prophecy. And so if we don't really have an understanding of what prophecy is, we're going to miss a lot of what Scripture is even about. Another very important point is what we were just talking about, that the Lord Jesus is the subject of prophecy, and it involves him and his glory. And so we really want to be occupied with that. And uh, finally, a third point, and I want to show these last two points from Scripture, but the third is that as we take up with the subject of prophecy, it's not given to us by the Spirit of God to tickle our minds. But it is given to us so that it can have a moral effect in our lives. And so that it can take our hearts and our minds away from this world and the coming judgment that is on it and direct us towards Christ and his coming glory. And so there's a very important aspect of prophecy that has to do directly with us as to our moral state. But going back to the Lord Jesus... We talk about it being about him. We've seen these verses. But indeed, really, all of Scripture is about him. Let's go back to John chapter 5 for a moment. And I'm just looking at yet another Scripture on this point because, while it might seem pretty obvious to someone the way I have put it, yet a great many have missed it. And not seeing the fact that the scriptures themselves, not just prophecy, are about the Lord Jesus. So John 5 and verse 39, this is what the Lord said. Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And they are they which testify of me. And so, a simple statement by the Lord. The scriptures are those words from God that testify about the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And if you were to go to Luke 24, you'd find there that the Lord spoke to two of his disciples, and he spoke of all those things in the scriptures concerning himself. And so that is the subject of the word of God, but not the least so when it comes to prophecy. Now let's go over to Acts chapter 8 and see another verse there. <clears throat> And this gets a little bit closer to our subject tonight. Acts chapter 8, and we all know, I believe, the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. But just a few verses out of that story, we know that that eunuch was uh, riding along, and Philip came and joined himself to the chariot. And then the eunuch was speaking to Philip. He desired that he would sit with him in verse 31. In verse 32, it says, The place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before his shearers, so opened he not his mouth. In his judgment, in his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Quotation from Isaiah 53. I think we recognize that. But he just stops right there. That was what he was interested in. And this is very, very similar to what we're going to consider a little bit later on tonight, Lord willing. As we go on, we'll see it speaks about the Lord Jesus, again, like Scripture speaks about, and how that he was going to be cut off and have nothing. That's what it's going to say in the verse that we're coming to in Daniel chapter 9. <clears throat> verse 34, And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee of whom speaketh the prophet this, 
of himself or some other man. Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. Beautiful. And so that's really the point, and that's what we want to get. Now, what about the moral effect on ourselves? Let's go to 2 Peter chapter uh, 1. You see a verse there. Verse I think is often misunderstood, but when you see what it's speaking about, you get a sense of how important this is for us. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 19. Peter says, We have also a more sure word of prophecy, where unto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your heart. Well, the day is going to dawn. The Lord Jesus is going to come. The day star is going to arise. It's going to break into this world in all of its glory. But that isn't really what it's talking about in this verse. It's saying that we have this more sure word of prophecy and we need to take heed to it. He says, you do well that you take heed to it. As unto a light that shines in a dark place. We are in a dark place. And we have the word of God that is presenting to us the more sure word of prophecy. Until what? Until that day... dawns and the day star arises in this world? No, it's good that we should take up prophecy until that happens. But that's not what the verse says. It says, till it arises in your heart. We take up this subject of prophecy and it leads our hearts, our minds onto the Lord Jesus Christ and that glory. We don't wait for him to come to enjoy his glory. And Paul talks in 2 Timothy Chapter 4, about the crown of righteousness that is laid up for every one of us who um, enjoys his appearing, who values his appearing. Um, And so as we have his appearing before us, it has a moral effect in our lives. And the day star here will actually dawn, it will break there, and we'll enjoy him even before he comes. So prophecy is very important, and we want to make sure that we don't uh, treat it idly and just say, well, it's nothing, it's for other people. Maybe those who are more students of the Word than I am. No, it's for every single one of us, and it has directly to do with both the Lord's glory and the way we live our lives now. Let's go over and now look a little bit about the outline, get to our subject. 2 Timothy chapter uh, 1. Second Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13. Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me, and faith and love which are in Christ, which is in Christ Jesus. Now this form of sound words would be an outline of sound words, I think if you read it in the New Translation. And really it's to have an outline of truth. We need to, first of all, have an outline, then hold it. And I think this is really important because it's difficult, especially when you come to a subject like prophecy, to get a good understanding of it unless you have an outline, a framework on which to build. When you come to verses in the Old Testament and you're reading in Isaiah about certain things that are happening there, how does this even fit in? And if you don't have a basic outline, it's going to be very, very hard. If you do, it can be difficult. 
But without the outline, it's almost impossible. So, Lord willing, that's what we want to spend our time with tonight. It's just the outline and to get some of the basic ideas um, from Scripture and, and see if we can understand it there. So, I often have thought about this as the way we go about building a house or something you know, like that. You might be tempted to build a house. You, you just want to get on with it. And you just put a few bricks or maybe some concrete in the foundation. And, and on top of that, you put a few boards and a, a, a little bit of the frame wall. And then maybe a little piece of the roof and put some shingles on, a little bit of paint on the inside. This is no way to build a house, is it? You really want to get that foundation laid. And then you want to build the framework of the house. And then you want to start hanging things on it. And that's exactly the way it is when we come to many subjects of the Word of God, and perhaps most so when it comes to prophecy. So really we want to look at, at that outline, and um, I'm just going to go through the most basic of outlines, perhaps. If we just look at prophecy in terms of what happens from this point where we are right now to eternity, and look at it in its simplest terms, this is how I understand it. So what we are waiting for at any moment is the rapture, that the Lord Jesus is going to come and take us home. All the believers, he's going to take us home to be with himself. And that is a subject of New Testament prophecy. You won't find it in the Old Testament. You won't find the church in the Old Testament. But we, as believers, we're in the church and we're waiting for that moment. I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about the rapture tonight. I believe that it often is discussed among the Lord's people and we have somewhat of a sense of that. It's going to happen at any moment. We will refer to it. But there are many verses to support and to show that this is the very next event for which we are waiting. This is First Thessalonians 1. Verses 9 and 10, you can find there how that the Thessalonian saints turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven. And so that's still our position today. <clears throat> Just exactly as they were, we're serving the Lord and waiting for him to come from heaven. And at any moment he may. After that, there is a period of time called the tribulation period, and it's seven years long. We don't know from Scripture exactly how soon after the rapture that begins, but it may be very soon after. Um, but the Scripture goes on to that period of time. And most of what we'll talk about a little later tonight has to do with that seven-year tribulation period. And that period is ended by the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ called the appearing. Okay, so the Lord Jesus has two comings in this world. The first coming was when he was born as a man in humility on earth. And at that time, the end of that time, of course, he went to the cross. His second coming has two parts. The first part is when he comes for his own at the rapture. And the second part of the second coming is the appearing, when he comes with his own. And we'll see that again, Lord willing, tomorrow night. After the Lord comes at the appearing, then the scripture speaks about 
a 1,000 year period of time. We call it millennium because that's Latin for 1,000. You won't find millennium as a word in the scripture, but the 1,000 year reign of Christ is all over the scriptures and defined as to its length in Revelation chapter 20. And so that follows immediately after the appearing, and it's 1,000 years long. At the end of that, there are more than one things that occur, but I'm only putting some of the key points here. I want to keep it simple so we get a, just a, a basic structure in the mind, and then you can build all the other things on that later. But the Great White Throne would be a, a major event that occurs at the end of the millennium. And, of course, all the dead who are unbelievers will be raised up there and judged. And those who had faith in heaven and earth will go on after that with the Lord, and there will be eternity. We call it here the eternal state because there will be no change. It will be an unchanging state of things that will go on forever, a blessing with the Lord. So that's just a real rough, not rough, basic outline of the major points. And if you haven't seen this or you don't have this clear in your mind, I would encourage you to start here and get this outline clear. And as we go through the scriptures, we'll be coming back to these various points and, and establishing by the scriptures. So far, I've only said it. Um, but it's the word of God that has to decide whether these things are so. So having said that, I just want to go back for a moment and give a, a brief sketch up to where I want to start from the Old Testament scriptures tonight. When we take up a subject like prophecy, you really can't divorce it from teaching on dispensational, God's dispensational ways or dispensational truth. But I'm going to have to, for the sake of time, largely divorce it from that and only refer to some key dispensational events uh, as they're absolutely necessary. But when you look at prophecy, and what the scripture presents of it, it begins as soon as sin came into the world. Genesis chapter 3, you find that Adam and Eve had sinned. And the Lord came there where they were, and Satan was there too. And he speaks to them, and he speaks to Satan. And you remember what the Lord said to Satan. He said that there would be a seed of the woman, and that seed of the woman would bruise... <coughs> The head of Satan. Satan would bruise his heel and he would bruise Satan's head. And so there was introduced right from the start of man's failure the fact that God was going to send a deliverer into this world. And that would be the end result. There would be deliverance from Satan. And going on from there, we find that God gradually revealed his purposes with man. He dealt with man in different ways. Dispensationally, we won't go over that, but there came a time when God gave promises to one man, Abraham. And he promised that in the seed of Abraham, there would be great blessings and all the nations of the earth would be blessed as well through that seed. And Galatians, the book of Galatians goes on to tell us that that seed was Christ. And so again, God makes it very clear that his purpose right from the start is to bring all blessing for man about in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the end. <clears throat> and yet God had 
in those promises something for a particular people on earth. And that people, of course, was Israel. I'm just referring to this briefly, that God chose them from out from among the nations to bring them into special relationship with himself, giving them his covenant, and even living right in the middle of them. And he was to be the one who reigned over them. And through them, there would be his dominion over the whole earth. He was the God of the earth. And in that relationship that the Lord set up with that people Israel, there was great failure, and they didn't even want him to reign over them. So he gave them a king. There was failure in the king. There was failures in all the kings. And it went on worse and worse. The two tribes were separated from the ten tribes. Ten tribes went off into absolute idolatry and eventually were carried away. The two tribes did better, but they too were carried away captive. And God at that time brought about a change in his purposes. Up until that time when the two were carried away captive, you find much prophecy recorded in the word of God. And the prophecy really had two aspects. One, to recall the people to the Lord. And two, to speak of the coming day of their restoration and the glory of the Lord when that day would come. And you'll find that all the way through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Minor Prophets. But when we get to the book of Daniel, we find there's a change to all of that. God then comes in and he looks at things in a different way and he takes up then not with Israel and reigning through Israel over the earth, but he takes up with the Gentiles. And that's really where I want to begin. If we're going to look at a a framework of prophecy, that's where God actually gives through Daniel the prophet what the timeline is of these end time events. And so let's turn over to Daniel chapter 2. And so we're going to take just a few verses from Daniel 2. And then we'll go on to Daniel 9. But in Daniel 2, we have Daniel as a prisoner, captive, but doing very well in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, of course, is the king. I think we all know that story, at least somewhat. And Daniel was being brought on to uh, be one of the wise men in Babylon. But there were others who were before him, and the king one night had a dream. And he commanded that his wise men should interpret that dream, but they couldn't. But Daniel knew the God in heaven who knows all things and can interpret dreams. And so he said so. And he went in and he interpreted the dream of the king. And it was really the Lord speaking through this Gentile monarch to show something of what was going to happen all the way until the Lord Jesus would come again in this world. And we have all of that in this dream. So in a sense, it's, a, it's an important outline. It doesn't give some of the details that we'll get to in Daniel chapter 9, but I think you, you really need to start in Daniel 2. And if I could just stop and back up for one moment. I'm going through this in a specific order because it's the way that made sense to me. <laughs> so hopefully it will to you as well. To me, when you really want to get an idea of prophecy and how it's laid out in scripture, 
You need to go first to Daniel and get an understanding of Daniel. Then you need to go to Matthew chapter 4 and see how it continues with the very same subject. And then the book of Revelation, at least parts of it. And with those three in that order, I think you get a pretty good framework. And that's, with the Lord's help, what I intend to do here in these meetings. And after that, you can go and fill in many other details from the prophets, the minor prophets, the New Testament. Uh, they all fit into that framework very well. So uh, we'll start here in Daniel chapter 2. And um, in Daniel 2 and verse... 31, we'll go straight into the dream that Daniel, uh, first of all, told the king what it was and then interprets it. Thou, O king, sawest and behold a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. This image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass. His legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay and break them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Thou, O king, art a king of kings. For the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power and strength and glory, and wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven hath he given unto thine hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. So we'll continue down here in a moment. But we have seen now an image with four different metals in it. Gold, silver, brass, or bronze, and <clears throat> finally iron. And starting at the top and going down to the toes. And so here in the verse that we just read, the Lord made it very clear to Nebuchadnezzar, what that first part of the image was. It was Nebuchadnezzar himself. He was the one who the Lord gave this power and authority, and we'll see in a minute why and what this all leads to. But it isn't. In fact, we can just look at some of that right now That say that it always had been with Israel. God was the God of Israel. But now there is a change in God's plans, and he is now acting to bring about his purposes through uh, Gentiles. And we're going to see that each one of these four are speaking of Gentiles. The first is Nebuchadnezzar, and it was the most valuable of all. He was the head of gold. Because, as we're told in chapter 5, that whom he would, he slew. And whom he would, he kept alive. He had absolute authority. He wasn't the greatest but he had that authority. And then he says in verse 39, After thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee, and another third kingdom of brass, which shall rule over all the earth. So let's look at those two for a moment. Go to uh, chapter 5. You see 
there again. No question what the second kingdom is. Uh, there was uh, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson uh, who was in rebellion against the Lord and everything that the Lord stood for. And you remember there was writing that came on the wall. I'm going to skip through the details quickly, but many, many tickle you farsen. And it was in that time when the kingdom was taken away from him. It was no longer with Babylon, but Babylon fell that night. And the kingdom uh, of the world went over, the ruler, the, the dominion went over to the Medes and the Persians at that time. So that is the second one here, the, uh, uh, the chest of, of silver. And then the third one we have spoken of in the verses as well, another third kingdom of brass, which shall rule over all the earth. And we're told in chapter 8, what this was, that after the Medo-Persian Empire, there would be another king, king of Grisha, specifically tells us it's the king of Grisha who comes as the he-goat against the ram, and he, and he hits him, and he takes the power away from him. And so we know all of this is history. Babylon was up until the Medo-Persian Empire. The Medo-Persian Empire was very great, but it was until the Grecian Empire. And you can read the details of this in history, but look what it says the end of verse 39, which shall bear rule over all the earth, which was true. Alexander conquered until he wept because there were no more kingdoms to conquer. And then after that it says, there's a fourth kingdom. It doesn't give the details of how it goes on to the fourth kingdom, but uh, history certainly tells us Alexander died, and we get a lot of details about that in chapter 8. We won't take the time to look at it, because we really uh, want to get on to this fourth kingdom. But we find that it's strong as iron, and as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things, and as the iron that breaketh all these shall it break in pieces and bruise. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. But there shall be in it the strength of the iron, insomuch, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men. But they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. And so here he speaks about the fourth kingdom. We find that there's a point where it's all iron, and then it's divided and becomes part of iron and part of clay. Without going into those details here and now, just say that that, of course, is Rome. When we get to chapter 9, we're going to see that Rome is spoken of, but you could even... Uh, go to the New Testament and see when the Lord was on earth what he considered to be the authority that was then given by God. They came to the Lord Jesus and said, um, in Luke chapter 10, uh, 20, they said, um, is it right to give tribute to Caesar or not? He said, show me a penny. And so they did. And he says, whose image in the inscription is here. They said Caesar's. He says, then you render to Caesar what is Caesar, and to God what is God's. And so the Lord said, no, it's not to be rebelling. 
You give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And why? Because he was set up by God. And really, Caesar and the Roman authority at that time were uh, the ones that God had set up as, as his fourth kingdom. And so first it was iron. It's very strong. All the days uh, of Rome in the past, the 1,000 years that Rome reigned in this world, for most of that they were quite strong. But now they've disappeared. They're gone. And, and we'll see later on that we get on to what it speaks of at the end here. And it really gets to the very bottom of this image to the point where uh, the Lord Jesus himself will come and judge what this image represents. And you see that it's part of iron and part of clay. So we could talk a lot about that, but it speaks about a mixed state of things that will be at the end. And it talks about the seed of men mingling with them. Many thoughts about that, whether it's democracy or forms of government or whatever it might be. Um, but that's the end of this image. And most notably then in verse 44, it speaks about the days of uh, these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Now that, of course, is speaking about the Lord Jesus. He's often spoken about as a stone, stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. We have in Isaiah... We have the Lord Jesus as that great stone now who comes, and he comes in judgment at the end. It isn't a sudden increasing by the gospel to influence things. No, the stone comes suddenly and smashes this image to pieces. And it says here in verse 44 in the beginning, in the days of these kings, all these kingdoms in some form remain there to the end. The Lord comes in judgment on them all. That really is what we have here. And it presents to us really what the Lord calls in, in the Gospel of Luke, the times of the Gentiles. All these times when God is now acting through the Gentiles uh, as far as dominion and rule in this world. And it's why we as believers, we don't have any special um, <clears throat> kingdom that we look to having the Lord as his head on earth. He's now rejected, and we follow him in his rejection. He has committed uh, dominion into the hands of the Gentiles from this time that we read of here in Daniel all the way until the Lord Jesus comes again. And we wait for that time for the Lord to reign. Until then, there will be no other dominion here. So that gives us a brief outline. Let's go to Daniel chapter 9. And now we're going to get the timing of some of these things. Daniel 9. And we are skipping, like in all of these chapters, a great amount. There's so much here that's wonderful. But I don't want to skip one thing here. That Daniel was before the Lord, and he was praying. And it really starts in, well, if I just look at verse 17, now therefore our God, hear the prayer of thy servant and his supplications. And, and then if we go down to verse 19, Lord, hear 
Lord, forgive. Daniel was praying on the part of his people. There was a moral attitude that Daniel had, which is very important also when we approach this subject. We talked about the moral effect that it should have in our lives, but it's also important that we should understand that we don't come to prophecy to take it up as an intellectual exercise so that we can know something about these things and, and maybe be more educated in it. We come to it first starting with a moral spirit. That the whole reason for prophecy is that there has been failure on my, man's part. And we are not separate from that failure. It doesn't matter that we see failure in the world all around us that is grievous in the sight of God. There's failure enough in the church. And that failure and that was the occasion of prophecy, we're all part of. And we need to see that. And Daniel saw it. He understood that. And it was because of that spirit and attitude that he had that the Lord opened up his heart to Daniel. And so he says in verse 20, And while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yea, whilst I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. And so you see, Daniel was going to get understanding, but it wasn't until he had the proper spirit and attitude. And I would just suggest this too. Um, I have struggled with prophecy. I, I must confess it. But yet I have found that when I really get on my knees before the Lord and ask for his help and his help and own my own part in what the state and condition of things are, it's then that he opens even that more to me. Indeed, I think any scripture is that any line of truth is that way. But prophecy is no less so. And I think it's important that we all understand that and we come to this subject with a proper uh, attitude. But then look what it says next. He says, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. The Lord gives skill. The Lord gives understanding. It's not we. It's not natural intelligence. The Lord opens up our understanding. He says in verse 23, at the beginning of thy supplications, the commandment came forth. I am come to show thee, that thou, for thou art greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and consider the vision. I just want to stop at that word. Thou art greatly beloved. The Lord told Daniel, he says, you know, when you even started to pray, I already, this angel told him, he said, I was already coming. The Lord knows, and he will answer. If we have a prayer, he already answers even before we ask. But he does want us to ask. He wants us to come that way. And the first thing the Lord assures Daniel of is that he's greatly beloved. And this is such an important point that I want to go, and I want to look and see something that the Lord tells the disciples about with regard to this in John chapter 15. John 15, and verse 15, he says, Henceforth, I call you not servants, 
For the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. This is another very important part of prophecy. The Lord has shared it with you and me. Why? Because he loves us. You are greatly beloved. The Lord loved you so much he died for you. And because he died for you, he's joined you to himself. And he wants you and he wants me to know everything that he is going to do. We're bound up in his glory. His glory in the coming day, we're going to share in it. And he doesn't want us to wait until then. He loves us so much. He says, I call you friends. And I'm going to show you what I'm going to do. And so that's really along the line of what the angel told to Daniel here. You're a man greatly beloved. And so all these things that are hidden from everyone else, Daniel, I'm going to show them to you. And, of course, then Daniel wrote them down, and we've all gotten the benefit of enjoying these things that Daniel benefited from first. But he says here, Therefore, the end of verse 23, understand the matter and consider the vision. And then from verse 24 to verse 27, we have verses that would be an outline of prophecy. A very important outline of prophecy. If you have heard of Daniel's 70 weeks, that's what these verses are. And I want to go through these verses, and I'm hoping maybe uh, if, you're, if this is new to you, you can understand something of it tonight. Uh, if, it's not, if it's a little bit too much and it gets beyond you, understand what you can. And the handouts, of course, have quite a bit of information on here. The next chart that we'll go through, you can go and look at later on because it puts all the parts of this prophecy in their order on the diagram of that handout. But let's just start on verse 24. He says, Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. So we find that there is a period of time that is called 70 weeks, whatever that is. It's a measured length of time, and it was going to cause something to happen. And a number of things are listed in this verse. And without going into detail on all these things, we can at least see that there was a finishing of the transgression. To say briefly, that would be, as I understand it, all the transgression of Israel against the Lord. That's all going to be concluded in that period of time that is spoken of in these verses. And it says, to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity. I believe that is speaking about the Lord Jesus and what he did at the cross. And to bring in everlasting righteousness. That, of course, brings us to the end of God's judgments on this world, the tribulation period. And uh, there we have the millennium that is brought in. It's the beginning of that everlasting righteousness. The first thousand years when the Lord 
will reign on earth, and then after that eternity, he will reign as God, and God will be all in all. That tells us in Second Peter and in First Corinthians chapter 15. But it says here that uh, to seal up the vision and prophecy, that is, as I understand it, to complete all these things that have been prophesied of, and then to anoint the most holy. That there was a most holy place, and Daniel knew what that was. Didn't exist at that moment, but that was the temple in Israel. And, and there was going to be an anointing of that holy place, and everything that was wrong done against the Lord was going to be made right by the end of these 70 weeks. So hopefully we got that. Basically, 70 weeks takes us from where you are, or from some point, Daniel, that I'm going to talk about, all the way to the end, and the Lord comes. Now, what are these 70 weeks? Because certainly 70 weeks later, after this was said to Daniel, this didn't happen. And we'll, go, we'll find as we go on through this chapter that these weeks are divided up. Part of it happened and part hasn't. But still, when you look at it, you, you look and say, with 70 weeks, like we understand weeks, I don't see how this makes any sense. And the answer is it doesn't. And the word weeks here does not mean a week of seven days. It simply means a heptad or a, a period of seven. And when we look at this prophecy, it becomes very clear that it's talking about a period of seven years. So one week is seven years. And if we're talking about 70 weeks of years, that's 70 times 7, or 490 years. So when he says here, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon the holy city, he's talking about 490 years that God has a prophetic clock for. And I'm going to tell you what happens, he says, in those 490 years. And at the end of that, there's going to be the everlasting righteousness brought in, which any Jew would know that means Messiah is reigning. The Lord Jesus has come. Now, who is this regarding? It says, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people. Who were Daniel's people? Is that the church? It's very important to understand that. It wasn't the church. The church is entirely distinct. And it says, and upon the whole, thy holy city. What was Daniel's holy city? Is it the new Jerusalem in heaven? No. It's Jerusalem that was on earth. It had been destroyed at this point. But now the angel's telling Daniel what's going to happen to that city over this period of future time. Now, I just want to say... We're not spending a lot of time to talk about the church, just like the rapture here. These prophetic events that we're taking up have to do with after we're gone out of this world. And like I said earlier, we're pretty much skipping over dispensational truth, but you need to understand that there is a difference between the church and Israel. And if we were to take the time and turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, you would find a verse there that says, giving none offense, neither to the Jew, nor to the Gentile, nor to the church of God. God makes these three distinctions of people in the world. 
And every one of them has a place in the purposes of God, a place of blessing. And all, and that place of blessing for each one of those groups is distinct in God's purposes. And so we are the church of God. We are a heavenly people. Our place is outside this scene, and so we don't even have uh, any mention of the church in the Old Testament when God was dealing with Israel, his earthly people. All of their hopes, all their blessings, when you go read through the Old Testament, they're earthly. But you read in Ephesians and other New Testament places, you find that all of ours are heavenly, entirely distinct. And the Lord Jesus in Ephesians 1.10 is going to be glorified in two spheres, in heaven and in earth. And we are going to be with him in that heavenly sphere. And in the earthly sphere, there's going to be two parts of the blessing. The one is going to be Israel, and the other is going to be all the Gentiles. That's what was promised to Abraham at the beginning. God always keeps his promises. So, just to understand that, verse 24, these 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. We are going to talk about Israel and the Gentiles, but Israel here, because that's what this prophecy is about, it's Daniel's people and the city of Jerusalem. We go to Matthew 24, we'll see the same. Now, let's just go on. We'll maybe take up verse 25, um, and, and then we can pick up again after, after, the, um, after supper. So verse 25 says, Know therefore, and understand, that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublous times. Now there's a lot here. But what, okay, so let's start and just look at the chart because this might help a little bit. So here we have Daniel's 69 weeks on this side and it goes from a time that we'll talk about, and it ends at the cross. And I think it really ends just a little bit before the cross. We'll talk about that in a moment. And then we'll find Daniel's 70th week. And we'll see that that's a seven-year period of time. Hopefully you can guess what that seven years is. It's a tribulation, isn't it? Okay, so that's what we're coming from. This gives us our whole outline. And down the bottom here we have the image that we just looked at in Daniel chapter 2 with the head of gold. This was Babylon. Then we had the Medo-Persian Empire, silver. And then the Grecian Empire with brass. And then the, the legs of iron and, and the feet part of iron and part of clay, not really shown here. And this is the times of the Gentiles, which you'll find referred to as a term. Maybe you can't read that in the back, but Luke 21, speaks. the Lord speaks about the times of the Gentiles. We're in that right now. It started with Babylon and it goes until the Lord comes again out of heaven. Those times. So, when we take up what it says in this verse, and we'll refer from now on to the chart, but I just want you to notice one thing first. It says, from the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem Unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. So three score, that's three times 20 is 60, right? So that's 62 weeks. 
So first of all, there's seven weeks, and then there's 62 weeks. You put that together, you have what? 69, right? And that's what we're talking about here, 69 weeks. And so this chart is showing what this verse says, because the commandment to rebuild Jerusalem was in Nehemiah chapter 2. And there Nehemiah is told to go back, and he goes and he does it. Uh, he goes and does certain things there, but there was a great deal of trouble that came in. And so if we really just look at what this verse says, you see it's the, six, the 70 weeks, we only have 69 of them here, and we have it split into two parts. First of all, the seven, which is 49 years. And it turns out that that 49 years was the length of time it took to rebuild the wall and the moat, the street, all of that was built in those 49 years. Okay? And so that really was the first part of that prophecy fulfilled. And, and then when you go on from there, the next, oopsie, okay, there we go. Get on to the, go on to the next 62 weeks. So after the full 69, 7 plus 62, it says that's unto Messiah the Prince. And if you were to get a book called The Coming Prince, it's freely available online by Sir Robert Anderson. You can go through that. And he very carefully goes through the whole thing. And he shows how from 445 B.C., that each one of these events occurred. And he calculates out to the day when the 69 weeks end, and that was the very day that the Lord rode into Jerusalem on the, the foal of an ass. And he came and they acclaimed him as their Messiah, Hosanna, blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. The children cried out. There was witness to who he was. He came in exactly as had been prophesied in that cult. And he was the Messiah, the Prince. He came to the holy city, and it was very clear the scriptures were fulfilled. That ends those 69 weeks. Now, Lord willing, a little later on, we'll see what happens when the Lord comes. But this verse takes us right up to the end, it says, the street shall be built again, the wall even in troublous times. And so all of that was future for Daniel, but by the time you get to the New Testament, it was all history and well-known. And like I said, if you go through Sir Robert Anderson's book, which you can download freely, you can find in detail exactly uh, how all those dates were fulfilled. But Lord willing, we want to go see what happens after Messiah the Prince, what happens to him, and then what happens in that 70th week. So perhaps we'll just leave it there for now, and we'll close with a word of prayer. Our God and our Father, we just thank Thee that Thou hast revealed uh, wonderful things to us, and that we can know Thy purposes in this world. We freely acknowledge that without Thy word, Thy direct revelation, we could know none of this and really nothing of wisdom either. We thank Thee for Him who is Himself, wisdom. And we thank Thee that we know Him. We thank Thee for His finished work on Calvary's cross and for the blessedness that we've been brought into because of it. And we just we look to Thee, our God and our Father, that Thou would cause us to know uh, more of Him 
and to be transformed more into his own image. So we commit this meeting to thee in this time. We think of this time of fellowship now before us and pray that thou would bless that as well. We ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.